Hello everyone, J.B. Hickson here with Not By Works Ministries. We are continuing our series, What Lies Ahead? A Biblical Overview of the End Times. And we come now to part four. And I've really been looking forward to this session and the next uh, couple of sessions as we dive into the subject of the rapture. And uh, in fact, it was this topic that really uh, compelled me to, to start this series. And rather than just do a series on the rapture, I thought I would do a comprehensive overview uh, of uh, the end times. We're using uh, my book by the same name, What Lies Ahead, as sort of a companion resource during this series. And those of you that are here with us at Plum Creek Chapel uh, can pick up a copy of that out on the table in uh, the lobby. If you're watching this uh, series uh, on video, then I encourage you to go to the Not By Works website where you can uh, purchase the book uh, through the Not By Works store. Just click on the store button when you get to the homepage there at notbyworks.org. And be sure to use the coupon code WLA and you'll get a 25% discount. I'm doing that just during the recording of this series. And we expect to be uh, going through this uh, material for the next uh, couple of months at least, maybe longer. But I want to do a comprehensive overview of everything uh, related to the end times. And we're not necessarily tracking chapter by chapter verbatim with the book, but all of the material that I plan to cover in the video will also be in the book. Uh, just a great resource, 346 pages. It's got uh, 16 chapters with study questions at the end of each chapter. Uh, it's got the more than 20 charts and graphs. Um, a scripture index. If you want to look up any scripture in the Bible and see if I touch on it somewhere in the book, you can use the scripture index and it'll take you right to the page or pages where that particular verse or passage is uh, discussed. Um, and uh, it's, by the way, this book is, is used in a few colleges and seminaries as an eschatology textbook. So I uh, highly recommend you pick it up. Great book to have on yourself as a resource uh, when you have questions uh, about something related to the end times. Now, by way of review, we started out by talking about why should we even be studying the end times. You know, I spent 18 sessions talking about the spirit of the Antichrist and all of the things happening around us as Satan attempts to usher in his uh, Luciferian New World Order. Uh, and that uh, certainly got a lot of traction, and I was very uh, excited to share a lot of that information and kind of put it together in a cohesive way, uh, some of which I'd been studying for 15 years. Uh, but we've shifted now into uh, biblical doctrine related to the end times. And some people might say, oh, why is that relevant? Well, we answered that in session number one. We talked about how one-third of the Bible is prophecy, and half of that has not yet been fulfilled. And what that means is that if you ignore the, the subject of the end times, you're ignoring one-sixth of the Bible. But there are many other uh, reasons to study the end times as well, and I encourage you to go back and watch that first session. But then we got into the big picture and we talked about how really the study of the end times begins at the beginning. you got to start with Genesis and trace God's kingdom promise all the way through the Scripture. And this uh, promise is something that is uh, touched on again and again throughout the ages, Old and New Testament alike. And it brings us all the way full circle to the book of Revelation, the end of the story, where we find out Christ comes back and makes all things new. And the Bible gives us a lot of detail about the circumstances related to Christ's return. And then we asked, uh, where is this promised kingdom? If it's been promised for centuries and we haven't experienced it, we're still not living in a perfect age of peace and justice and righteousness. We're still not experiencing the kingdom of our Lord who's reigning on the throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. What happened? Where is it? And we looked at a number of uh, responses to that question and uh, talked about how 
uh, it all comes down to God's timetable, that God's promises are sure, that he's not willing that any should perish, and that in his time he will usher in uh, the promised kingdom. And then last week, we talked about the covenant behind the promise. There is a covenant made by Almighty God, the creator of the universe, that guarantees the future coming kingdom of Christ. And that's uh, what we looked at uh, last week. And we want to set the stage this week for our discussion of the rapture, and we'll be talking about the rapture for the next uh, at least two or three weeks. kind of depends on uh, what direction I decide to go with it and how many details we want to get into. But the rapture relates directly to this issue of waiting patiently uh, for the coming kingdom. You know, it's been 2,000 years and still no kingdom. So should we give up hope? <laughs> you know, that's what a lot of early Christians began to do, like I talked about uh, in the last session. Um, you know, it had been uh, three decades since Christ's ascension in the late first century, and still he had not returned. Um, and then a generation after generation, hope began to wane, and here we are 2,000 years later. And why should we think that God's promises are still in place? Well, because God is a God who cannot lie, and he's confirmed his promises uh, with a covenant. So uh, before we get to the, the rapture specifically and all of the biblical passages in the New Testament that talk about the rapture, we first have to understand God's purposes for the church and Israel. You may remember how we talked about that God has many purposes in his overall plan ultimately to usher in a kingdom. And we've talked about this particular diagram many times, but it started with creation on the left side there and then moved into redemption. And ultimately, it involves the redemption of all creation with the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom, and ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. But along the way, we've said that God has a plan for all of the created universe. And that includes not just a plan of salvation for individual men, which is certainly a big part of God's plan, but he has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for the church, the bride of Christ. He has a plan for angels and demons and physical creation. He has a plan for the entire universe. And so what we want to do uh, this session is zero in a little closer at God's plan specifically for Israel and the church. And You see those there within that circle of the plan for the universe uh, there at the top of that circle in blue, God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church right above that. Uh, so we need to understand the distinction between Israel and the church. If you don't catch that distinction in Scripture, then of course you're going to be confused about the rapture because the rapture is an end times prophecy that relates only to the church. So you have to see the distinction. There are many uh, Bible teachers, well-intentioned though they may be, who suggest today that the church has replaced Israel, and Israel is no more, that God has forsaken his chosen nation. Well, that is easily uh, disproven when you look at Scripture in its plain, normal sense. Again, last week I talked about uh, just briefly a little bit of Bible study methods uh, principles or hermeneutics principles about how we should take the Bible in its plain, normal sense, its literal, grammatical, historical sense. And we have traced already in this series through the Bible and through history uh, the way in which God's promises were given in their original context. And we've, we've looked at how the original recipients would have understood 
those uh, those that language, those words, those promises. In other words, how did David understand it when God promised him a throne and a kingdom and a, and a temple and so forth? Um, how did Mary understand it when uh, she was told that the baby she was carrying was the Christ child who would take the throne of his father David forever? And we saw how the disciples repeatedly understood the kingdom in a literal sense, wanting to know who would sit where and who would be the greatest and what would they get. And Jesus promised them they would sit on 12 thrones. And again and again, we looked at how the only plausible understanding in its literal grammatical historical sense of the kingdom promises is literal. There's no indication anywhere in scripture that God's kingdom was ever intended to be taken symbolically or metaphorically. And so when you look at the Bible the way language is intended to be read and understood, you cannot come to any other conclusion except that God has a continuing plan for Israel and promises that remain unfulfilled specifically made with Israel, in fact, covenants between God and Israel, uh, following a typical ancient Near Eastern covenant paradigm, and promises that were made specifically and only with the church. And you see that both the church and Israel play unique roles in the future kingdom. Even though it will be a global kingdom and every believer from all ages will participate in it, uh, there will be particular roles to play for the apple of God's eye, Israel, and the bride of Christ, uh, the church. So let's take a closer look at God's plan for Israel and the church. When you come to the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul uses this word dispensation, which we've talked about previously, and says that this was a mystery. The dispensation of the church was a mystery. What was that mystery? That mystery was that Jews and Gentiles would form one body, would be made up of the same body, and as such would be partakers of God's promise, this promise that we've been talking about going all the way back to Abraham and really even to Genesis 3.15 with that protevangelium that we talked about a couple of sessions ago. So the question is, if this dispensation of the church is a mystery, what is a mystery? And the, the Greek word mystery is the Greek word mysterion, and it means previously undisclosed revelation. Whenever you see the word mystery in Scripture, you're dealing with something that was not revealed previously. It's new revelation in God's plan. It's not found in the Old Testament. And indeed, you never find the word church mentioned in the Old Testament. There's no reference to it whatsoever. It's a new entity, um, not new in the mind of God, because God is eternal and all-knowing, and all of God's plan is determined in eternity past. But from our perspective, the church is not simply a tweaking of some uh, aspect of God's plan from the Old Testament. It was an entirely new part of the plan, a new phase in the plan. That's what a mystery is. We use the term mystery in English sometimes to just mean uh, sort of confusing or uh, not easily understood, but a mystery in Greek, and as used in Scripture, was previously undisclosed revelation. The New Testament tells us about the church, and it tells us some of the purposes of the church. And by the way, when you study Scripture, an important rule of hermeneutics, I don't believe I mentioned this last week in our brief opening discussion, uh, but the, the, one of the fundamental rules of studying the Bible is you, you've got to study it according to the progress of revelation. In other words, God unveiled his plan of the ages and his truth 
over a period of time specifically over 1,500 years, using three different languages, 40 different human authors. And over time, he unveiled everything we need to know. And something that he unveiled later cannot fundamentally change what he had said earlier. Otherwise, when God said the earlier information, he would be made out to be a liar or incorrect. Furthermore, it would be disingenuous for God to reveal something to a given audience at a given context in a given time which he knew was later going to be changed and not true at all. So when God talks about his plan for Israel, for Judah and Israel, and and he unveils these promises of a future kingdom uh, by Daniel, and all of the prophets speak of of this future uh, kingdom. When Ezekiel, for example, speaks of the the temple that would be built in that future kingdom, uh, that was talking about Israel. And to say that somehow hundreds of years later, God could say, could write something or reveal something, unveil something over the progress of Revelation, that basically says, oops, changed my mind. I really didn't mean that. Here's what I really meant, uh, is disingenuous. It's not possible for God to do that. So you can never, the short way to say that is you can never take New Testament revelation and have it fundamentally change the Old Testament revelation. The New Testament can add new information, can give us more details about something that was revealed in the Old Testament, but it can never change what was revealed in the Old Testament. To do so violates fundamental rules of uh, of language. I mean, think about David. If you're David, and you're listening to God's covenant with you in 2 Samuel 7, and God promises that someone from your line is going to rule and reign on the kingdom, on the throne, in the temple, in the kingdom forever. And then, you know, a thousand years later in the New Testament, God says, well, what I really meant by that was symbolically, metaphorically, he's going to reign in your heart. Just kidding, David. Sorry that for the last thousand years, while you've been in heaven watching things unfold, you've thought it was going to be a literal kingdom. Oops, what I really meant was this. God doesn't do that. He doesn't communicate in that way. So that's why we must always read the Bible in, in, in its chronological unveiling of information. And that's why, by the way, we started this series, uh, What Lies Ahead, by looking at Genesis, not Revelation. Uh, if you start with the last chapter in a book, uh, you're going to be pretty confused and end up with some pretty wild interpretations. But if you trace God's kingdom plan from the beginning and see how it unfolds and how God gives more and more information about it until it was completely revealed and fully revealed in the totality of God's word, then it all begins uh, to make sense. So I hope that's uh, that's uh, clear. It's, it's basically the theological term for that is the priority of prior revelation. The priority of prior revelation. Later revelation can never change earlier revelation. It can only add to it, give more information, give more details. Uh, one a clear example of that I could give you many, but in Isaiah 61, uh, we see a God uh, unveiling the plan of the coming Messiah. And within that one prophecy, indeed within one sentence, he speaks of things that pertain to both the first advent and the second advent. At the time they were given, it wasn't clear how much time there would be between the first and second advent. And it was not clear that there would be a gap of time from that passage of any certain length. Uh, you come to the New Testament and we begin to see how Christ, when he came the first time, was rejected, even though that specifically was also uh, predicted in the Old Testament, and that we would enter a delay 
between the first and second advent that is called the church age. And so that doesn't change what Isaiah said. It just adds more information to it. Same thing with Daniel chapter 9. We're going to get into Daniel 9, one of the key prophecies in all of Scripture for understanding the end times. And we're going to see how in the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, there is a gap of time required and clearly explicitly stated in Daniel's prophecy between the first advent and the second advent. And, and and then the New Testament comes along and tells us additional things that will occur during that gap of time, uh, even though that they were the Old Testament was silent about them. That's not changing anything. That's just adding additional information. So let's take a look with that understanding between about the difference between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church at the five purposes for Israel that we see in Scripture. Again, the church cannot be the same thing as Israel. And you're going to see that as we go through the purposes for the church and the purposes for Israel. And then having laid that foundation, only then can we begin to see what the Bible teaches about the rapture and how it pertains only to the church. It's a unique blessing for the church. In fact, as you shall see, I don't know if we'll get to it in this session or, or next, but the Bible actually calls the rapture itself a mystery. So the church is a mystery. And the rapture is a mystery. So the second coming is not a mystery. It was clearly taught in the Old Testament. Israel's been looking forward to the coming of Christ to establish their kingdom for centuries. So to take something that the Bible explicitly in the New Testament calls a mystery and go back in time and apply it to some previous revelation and previous prophecy and sort of conflate the two, like so many do, thinking that the second coming and rapture are the same thing, uh, is a hermeneutical mistake. It's, it's, it's not the way you're supposed to handle a language. So five purposes for Israel. What, what purpose does Israel uh, achure, uh, serve in God's uh, plan of the ages? Well, uh, first of all, uh, the purpose of Israel was to witness to the unity of Yahweh, the Creator God, Yahweh being the personal intimate name for God, in the midst of universal idolatry and paganism. You remember the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So God called the nation of Israel, uh, set them aside for the purpose of witnessing and illustrating the unity of Yahweh and, and, and showing the world, showing all of mankind that there is but one God and he is uh, the creator. You look at Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, God tells Israel through the prophet, you are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. <laughs> Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And besides me there is no Savior. So God uh, set Israel apart for the purpose of illustrating and witnessing to the unity of God, the unity of himself as the one true God and creator of the universe. Secondly, uh, the purpose of Israel was to be an example to all the rest of the nations of the benefits of serving Yahweh. We see this again and again played out in Israel's history uh, in the Old Testament. But Israel, for example, was intended to go across the Jordan into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, which they've now still never fully occupied, as I talked about last week. Uh, but their purpose when they got into the promised land of milk and honey was to 
show ever all the other pagan ancient Near Eastern lands around them that, hey, you serve God, it's going to go well for you. God is a God of blessing and grace. And yet, of course, we know Israel didn't do that, and God brought judgment upon Israel. But if you look at Deuteronomy 33, again, uh, God told Israel there is no one like the God of Jeshurun, Yahweh, uh, referring to Yahweh, who rides the heavens to help you in his excellency on the clouds. You think your pagan statues and uh, all of these different uh, hilltop icons that you've set up and worshiping the stars and Malek and all of the and Baal and all of these pagan gods, you think they're going to help you? No, there's no one who rides, who domineers and controls the heavens to help you like God himself. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. Uh, God uh, is, is the God to be served and in doing so, there's a benefit for that. He goes, it goes on in that same passage, then Israel will dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone, using Jacob there as a metonym for Israel. In a land of grain and new wine, his heavens also shall drop dew. He says, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you? See, uh, all the other nations who served dead, powerless gods uh, had no hope. But if you serve the one true God, you're happy. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. I mean, how special is that? The creator of the universe chose Israel to be the apple of his eye. It's a pretty uh, special thing. Uh, so uh, the, the second reason that not only to witness to the unity of God and the oneness of the one true God, but to be an example to the nations of, of serving him. But notice another key purpose for Israel was to receive and record God's revelation in the scriptures. Uh, remember, uh, the, the entire Bible that we hold in our hands was written by Jewish people. Uh, these were God's uh, people, uh, by and large. And, and they, God's revelation was funneled through them. It started with Moses in the wilderness, during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings is when God revealed to Moses the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, God used the nation of Israel as a conduit of his revelation to reveal in written form uh, his plan and everything we need for life and godliness. Listen to what the Bible says. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has just that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which is set before you to this day? Uh, or Romans chapter uh, 3. Uh, the New Testament tells us, what advantage is there for the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? Well, much in every way. First of all, because to them, the Jews were committed the oracles of God. We I mean, don't ever forget that. I mean, why would God, for those replacement theologians out there who think the church has replaced Israel and Israel's done, God's through with them, their history, why would God cast aside the very nation that revealed his word to us and for us and for all the world? Uh, there, that's a that's an ongoing benefit for the nation of Israel, and then number four, to produce the Savior. 
I mean, we saw this going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, comes through the line of Abraham. He's the ultimate seed of Abraham and also the line of David, the king of the Jews and a Jew. Um, the, the Jewish line produced the Savior. Remember, we talked about how the, the earliest reference to God's promise was the reference to the virgin birth in Genesis 3.15 when God is talking to the serpent and he talks about how her seed, which a woman doesn't have a seed, so it's a clear reference, a veiled reference there to uh, the virgin birth. It's speaking of the ultimate descendant of man, the second Adam, as Paul would later refer to him in, Genesis, or in Romans chapter 5, is ultimately going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat Satan. Uh, and then we come to the Abrahamic promise that we talked so much about in the last session. And we see that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed because the Messiah will come from him. Uh, and he goes on to reiterate this in Genesis chapter 22. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed after the famous offering of Isaac on the altar. God reaffirmed this unconditional covenant with Abraham. In your seed, Abraham, all nations shall be blessed. And then, of course, Isaiah the prophet talked about how the virgin shall conceive and bear a son because uh, God's Savior could not be born of human normal natural conception because sin is passed down through the blood, Romans 5.12. Wherefore, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. But Jesus was not conceived through normal human means of Joseph and Mary. Joseph was a stepfather. Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit, preserving the sinless perfection of of Jesus Christ, who was fully man, yet without sin, and fully uh, God. And so uh, the nation of Israel produced, as the prophet Isaiah said, this child who would be the ultimate Messiah and Savior. The government will ultimately be upon his shoulders. We could go back to Romans chapter 1, the very first beginning verses of Romans, where Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Jesus Christ. Uh, and then uh, he goes on to say, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God. And so, um, you know, and we've talked about this verse earlier about how Jesus Christ is the ultimate seed of Abraham. Paul said, uh, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Notice the capital S there. Yet he does not say unto seeds, many people, the promise was ultimately made and fulfilled in Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham. And last week we looked at the different uh, seeds uh, of Abraham. And then finally, not only was the purpose of Israel to produce the Savior, but to be center stage in a global kingdom of peace one day. To be center stage in a global of global kingdom of peace someday. Isaiah 9, verse 7, I just talked about this verse in a devotional that I did this past week. You can check that out at notbyworks.org and just click on the blog there. Um, but in Isaiah's promise, he promised not only that a child would be born, but that child would one day grow up and ultimately... Uh, take control of the world and take the throne. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now that has not happened yet. We don't see a global kingdom of peace. 
But Israel will be center stage in that kingdom. Jerusalem will be the capital city of the world. Jeremiah the prophet put it this way, Behold, the days are coming that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king, that's Jesus, shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And Zechariah said, The Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. Shall be It shall be the Lord is one and his name one. See, right now, as we talked about in the Spirit of the Antichrist series, uh, we are seeing Satan uh, usher in a pluralistic age, and the Antichrist is going to usher in a one-world religion where everyone must bow down and worship him. But there is only one true God, only one true way to heaven. The Bible teaches an exclusivity to Christianity, and it all goes through Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why, in conjunction with his return, uh, we read that someday the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. There are, there's no more kingdoms, plural. There's one kingdom, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the Bible ends with these uh, precious words. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now let me ask you, if in the eternal state, when all things are made new and the Bible comes full circle to the pre-fall Edenic state, there is going to be a new Jerusalem. How can you reconcile that with the notion that so many teach today that God is through with Israel, God has replaced Israel, there is no future for Israel. There cannot be a future new Jerusalem if there is not a continuing nation of Israel. So uh, the fifth uh, purpose for Israel that we see from Scripture is to be center stage in a global kingdom of peace someday. Now contrast that with five purposes for the church, the mystery of the church that is now has now been unveiled veiled in the New Testament, Jew and Gentile in one body, the bride of Christ. Um, the Bible gives us some pretty clear uh, answers to the question, what purposes does the church serve? Well, first of all, to call out a people for his name. To call out a people for his name. In Acts chapter 15, James, the Lord's brother, is speaking at the Jerusalem council meeting, and listen to what he says. Simon, referring back to Peter, who had spoken before him, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And we see, if you, if you trace this, I didn't put this on the screen, maybe we'll come back to it in a future session, but you can prove unequivocally that the church began on the day of Pentecost. It was a new entity, a new work of God, a new body, a living organism, the bride of Christ. You can prove that it started uh, on the day of Pentecost because, uh, for example, Jesus in Acts 1 talks about how not many days from now you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, that baptism occurs. Paul later tells us that baptism of the Spirit forms one body with Christ being the head. Uh, Peter would later in Acts chapter 11 refer back to that event as a beginning. He literally calls it the beginning. So if it's a beginning and Paul calls it the church, it clearly follows that the church began on the day of Pentecost. And the purpose was to call out a people for his name. Now, uh, you know, it's interesting. We see in the history of the church, the, the biblical history in the book of Acts, the only historical book in the New Testament, that uh, the disciples first began to be called Christians in Antioch. 
Remember, early on, they were called disciples of Christ. It means followers of Christ. But not all followers were believers. Judas, for example, followed Christ. He was called a disciple, but he wasn't a believer. Uh, at some point, they were called the way. Uh, uh, they were members of a new sect uh, that was sort of upsetting the peace of Rome. But they ultimately began to be called Christians, and that's what we call them to this day. In fact, the movement takes its name from the Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, Christianity. Christian literally means Christ-like. And so one of the purposes for the church was to call out a people for his name. We don't see that in Israel. You know, Jews are not called Yahwehites. <laughs> They're called Jews or Israelites or whatever. Uh, we are called Christians. We bear the image of Christ, and we're supposed to be shining like lights in this perverse generation. Another purpose for the church age, and I've talked a lot about this, particularly in some of my Christmas messages this year in my Christmas series, but God instituted the church to showcase the exceeding riches of God's grace and mercy. Uh, you know, in, in uh, Ephesians 2, 7, it says, Paul explaining this, that in the ages to come, meaning the church age, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, grace has always been around. God, grace is an eternal attribute of God like all of his attributes. But in the present age, in the church age, God's grace was manifested in living color, in high definition. It sort of jumped off the pages of history. There are no, There is no greater example and manifestation of grace than the cross when Christ who knew no sin became sin for us as Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him he was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world he paid a debt that he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could never pay that's grace it's undeserved favor an undeserved gift and he gave us forgiveness of sin and eternal life for free, by paying our sin debt on our behalf when he shed his blood for us. And so that's a, a, you know, there were pictures of grace all through the ages and all through the Old Testament. Well, certainly we could think of Abraham and offering Isaac on the altar and many other examples, but nothing uh, like Calvary. Calvary outshines them all. And so he showcased uh, his riches uh, through us. Paul put it this way in Romans 11. By the way, Romans 9 through 11 is talking about the, the distinction between Israel and the church and the fact that God still has a future plan for Israel. Uh, it's unbelievable to me how people sometimes read Romans 9 through 11 and come away with the notion that the church has replaced Israel. It's, it's exactly the opposite. In fact, chapter 11 ends with the promise that the deliverer will one day come out of Zion and all of Israel will be delivered into the kingdom just as they were promised. And it quotes throughout this that section of chapters 9 through 11 in Romans, Old Testament second coming prophecies like Joel 2. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered into the kingdom, talking to Israel. Uh, but in Romans 11.31 we read that uh, even so, these uh, also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you they also may obtain Mercy. In other words, these Jews have been disobedient by rejecting the Messiah, so that through the mercy shown to the church, the Gentiles, the Jews might also one day obtain a mercy. And along those same lines, we see in this same section that one of the purposes for Israel was to I mean, of the church was to get Israel's attention. Now, this ought to really 
uh, you know, sort of knock the church down off its high horse. Those that think the church is the end-all, be-all of God's plan of the ages, that we've replaced Israel, that God's no longer has any purpose for Israel, that we are it, so to speak. Well, Paul makes it pretty clear, no, you know, yeah, God has a future for the church and that you play a role. You're going to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. You are the bride of Christ. There's a special connection there for sure. But really, one of the purposes of the church was just kind of to get Israel's attention. I needed something to kind of provoke them to jealousy. <laughs> I needed to remind them what they're missing. And listen to what Paul says. I say then, have they, that's the Jews, Israel, have they stumbled that they should utterly fall? The idea there is, has when they rejected the Messiah, did that mean they're done? They fell and fell all the way off a cliff never to come back? Or was it just a temporary stumble? And God says, no, they certainly are not have not utterly fallen. In fact, really, this whole age that we're living in now, he says, was to provoke them to jealousy when salvation came to the Gentiles. Now, stay with me here on this for just a second. The church is a microcosm, a foretaste of the glory to come. The church in no way is fulfilling God's covenant program. The covenant program has not been inaugurated yet. I talked about that last week. It won't be inaugurated until after the church age, during the kingdom age, when the king comes back and takes the throne, when his when his administration, his kingdom begins and is inaugurated. Uh, the entire kingdom program has been ratified. The covenant has been sealed, but it has not been inaugurated yet. And so in this present age, everything we see happening, the indwelling Holy Spirit, uh, the Jew and Gentile uh, in one body, the unmitigated access to God, the boldness to enter the throne room in heaven, the intercessor sitting at the right hand of God on our behalf, all of the truths that we read in the New Testament about the present age are unique to the church age and represent uh, simply a microcosm, a foretaste of the glory to come. So that the second time Christ comes back and he gathers Israel in the land, they are going to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, instead of crying out, crucify him, uh, crucify him. And they're going to say, boy, we blew it the first time, but we want what they've got. We want that intimacy. We want that relationship with Yahweh. We want that 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 uh, special, privileged, uh, unique relationship. And it's been promised to them. In fact, the New Covenant promises in Jeremiah 31 and, and Ezekiel 36 and other passages all speak of similar types of things that the church is experiencing today, but even better, uh, even better when the New Covenant is inaugurated uh, in the kingdom someday. So never forget that one of the purposes that we serve today is to get Israel's attention, and God would not need to get Israel's attention if he was through with them. So again, you just simply cannot reconcile really any of the New Testament teaching, or Old Testament for that matter, with the notion that Israel is done. Uh, why would God need to get Israel's attention if he's through with them? He's not through with them, and he wants them to be regathered in the land and usher in the kingdom someday. Notice this, I love this passage. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, talking about because Israel rejected the Messiah, look at all the good that's come from it. You know, the things we're talking about now, the calling out of people for his name, showcasing his grace and mercy and so forth. Then he says, just imagine how much more their fullness, how much more their fullness. He says, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. In other words, you think things are incredible now with the blessing of being a member of the Bride of Christ and the church. Just imagine when the fullness 
of the Gentiles has come in and the kingdom has been inaugurated and Israel as a nation is now embracing their Messiah. So to get Israel's attention was the third purpose for the church and then also to demonstrate God's wisdom to Satan. Boy, I love this one because I've talked a lot about the cosmic struggle and the Luciferian conspiracy between Satan and his human co-conspirators and demonic co-conspirators. There is a cosmic struggle that's been going on between good and evil, between God and Satan since Satan was kicked out of heaven uh, and for 6,000 years now. And one of the purposes of the present church age is to show Satan that God is smarter than he is. Notice in Ephesians 3, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then finally, the fifth purpose for the church is to prepare a body, a group, that will help rule and reign in that future messianic kingdom that we've been talking so much about. There is a promised kingdom. It is yet to come. It's been sealed and guaranteed by a covenant that we talked about last week. And one of the purposes for the church is that we, as promised by Christ, are going to rule and reign with him in that kingdom. Remember, Jesus told the disciples, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he said in Luke chapter 19, uh, that when the king comes back, he uses a parable here, but it's clearly referring to himself. When the king comes back, I'm going to say to you who have been faithful while I was gone, i.e. during the church age, hey, I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities or five cities, depending on how faithful uh, you were. Uh, again, in, Gen in uh, Luke chapter 22, uh, Jesus says, those of you who have continued with me in my trials, and uh, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. Remember, Jesus said the same thing early on in his ministry when he commended the faith of the centurion after his servant was healed. And he said, I tell you the truth, I've not seen so much faith in all of Israel. People will come from the east and the west and sit down at the table in the kingdom. But he says, when that kingdom comes, we will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you not know that the saints, that is church age believers, will judge the world? And 2 Timothy chapter 2 we're about out of time, so I'm going a little bit faster here, but I love this passage, the last letter Paul wrote. He reminds believers in writing to Timothy, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. See, there's a certain privilege of reigning in positions of authority for those who endure. Many believers will be in the kingdom and experiencing the bliss of the utopian kingdom someday, but they won't necessarily be in positions of authority. Why? Because if we deny him, he's going to deny us the right to reign with him. Not every believer will get that privilege. Um, but if we endure, we will reign with him. And then, uh, of course, Revelation chapter 20, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So are you beginning to see the distinction between Israel and the church? God is working out his kingdom plan of the ages. It will come. And uh, and he has a purpose along the way for many different groups, but specifically for the church and for Israel. And so as we think about this notion of, uh, of the rapture uh, someday, that brings us to this question of the New Testament teaching about the mystery of the rapture and how we in this present age are waiting patiently for the kingdom. Uh, I talked about that in my blog again this past week. Uh, the wait goes on, I, I called it. Um, 
So we wait. It's been 2,000 years, still no kingdom. Should we give up hope? Of course not. There is a blessed hope uh, that pertains to the coming of the kingdom and how that's going to be laid out and what are the steps and the sequences at the back of my book, What Lies Ahead. I've got a, uh, an appendix that, that deals with the sequential order of end times events. But right now, we wait patiently. And the rapture is the blessed hope. So next week, next session, we're going to talk about some of the passages that encourage us to wait patiently for the rapture, uh, which will be the beginnings of the coming kingdom um, and how it all unfolds. It's the next great prophetic event to which we uh, look forward. And there are several passages in the New Testament that exhort us to wait patiently and to eagerly look forward, and so forth. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll get into what is the rapture, what, what's the term mean, where is the term found in Scripture, and, and all kinds of teaching about the rapture over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so thanks again, and be, be sure to check out, uh, again, the website, and check out uh, the uh, uh, book, What Lies Ahead, if you're watching this online, and you can uh, pick that up at the Not By Works store. A lot of other great resources there. Uh, as well, and great resources out in the lobby for those of you here at Plum Creek. So thank you so much, and God bless.